0: You're listening to a sermon from Church of Christ at Treaty. For more resources, check out cctreaty.org. We are talking about discipleship. Um, Jesus doesn't call us to be Christians. We call ourselves Christians, but he calls us to be disciples. He calls us to lose our life for him, to surrender and follow him blindly. They left professions. Uh, The fishermen gave up fishing to fish for people. And much like they did, we're called to leave everything behind as well and follow him. And following Jesus means we do things like pray big prayers. We get involved in the word. We trust and we believe in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And we're doing these things on a daily basis. And today, I want us to see that evangelism, which is a fancy word for looking for lost people, is the heart of God. Amen? And if we're going to be disciples, if we're going to be Christians, if we're going to be little Jesus, Christian was actually a derogatory term that people would say, oh, look at that little Jesus. Look at that person that's trying to be like Jesus. And if I'm going to get accused of something, that's what I want to be accused of. Amen. Like, man, he's just trying as hard as he can to be like Christ. And that is the heart of God. And one of the things that's so close to him is that he wants the lost to be found. We sing Amazing Grace and I think we've memorized it and we believe it and we've sung it so many times it doesn't mean as much anymore, right? But I was lost in my sin and while I was lost, God sent Jesus to die for me and now I've been found, amen? And some of us, that's our testimony. And Jesus came, Luke 19 tells us in verse 10, for the son of man, Jesus came, why? To seek and save the lost. That's why he came. Because every single one of us was lost without him. And so he came to show us the way to the father, which was Christ. And it's close to his heart. He came for it and he sends us as disciples out to be committed to that mission, the mission of Jesus. It's important for us to both be prepared and to apply ourselves in doing this. Those of us who wanna reach people for Jesus have to be both willing to do it and able to do it. And I think sometimes we're good at one or the other. We're willing, we wanna do it, but we're not able. Or maybe we feel able, we feel capable, we know the truth, we know the answers, but we're not really willing to do it. And we can be able to share our faith, but not willing to, or we can be willing to share it, but not able to. And the last thing I want to see happen in the churches across America and across our world is for us to be convicted that the command is to make disciples, but to have no idea how to do it. And I think that that's the reality in so many people, is we believe it, right? Go into all the world. Yeah, we believe that. That's the command. I want to do it, but we have no idea how to do it. And so I want to help us today prepare ourselves to be able to share our faith in some practical ways and some biblical ways so that we can begin as individuals to share the good news with others. If we devote ourselves to these things, these attitudes, and these actions, I believe that we'll be more able to reach lost people for Jesus. And so to do that, I want to give you a brief history of a guy from the Old Testament named Nehemiah. Maybe you've heard about Nehemiah. Maybe you know the story really well. And maybe you're sitting here going, what does the story of Nehemiah have to do with reaching people for Jesus? But I want you to see this connection, and I think you will. So there's a guy in the Old Testament. There's a book named after him. It's called Nehemiah. And he is a Jew. But in the story, he's far from his homeland. Okay, so I want you to picture this guy. He's a Jewish man far from his homeland, but he's a descendant of the Jews who were taken into exile during the time of punishment. So there was the 70 years of God's punishment and they were taken into exile and Nehemiah was placed in a position as the cupbearer to a king, the king of Persia. And so even though Nehemiah is loyal to the king of Persia and his position, deep down in his heart, he has a greater loyalty. And that loyalty is to Jehovah, God, and to the people of God, the Jews at that time. And so Nehemiah, who's concerned about his people, he's concerned about his homeland. He asks his brother, who had just come from Judah, how things are going back where he's from, right? Have you ever got together with some old friends from back where you used to, your old stomping grounds or whatever you want to call it? And you're like, tell me about what it's like back there. How's it going? And so that's what he does with his brother. And the report that his brother brings is absolutely devastating. And just as we would be if we heard that our hometown was in ruins and it was completely destroyed, it says that Nehemiah sat down and wept about the devastation and the destruction of his homeland. Jerusalem, which was once this magnificent place, the capital of Israel was laid in ruins and he was devastated. It says he wept. Early in the 6th century, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon had invaded Judah. He left this place devastated. Jerusalem was destroyed. Solomon's temple was stripped of all the sacred items and it was burned down to the ground. We read about three separate deportations where they send thousands of Jews that were taken as, uh, to Babylon as prisoners. And so for those people who had been taken into captivity, everything would have felt extremely hopeless, right? Can you imagine? Being deported and in captivity, you would feel completely helpless. They were taken more than 500 miles east, far from their home, far from their dreams. And in Babylon, they had to have questioned God, right? They had to have been like, God, what are you doing? Fearing that God had turned his back on them. And in their hopelessness, all of a sudden, the prophets of God began to hear From God. And he began to fill these prophets, began to fill the people with hope, with restoration dreams that God was going to give them the place back. And so the Babylonian Empire, which is unstable when Nebuchadnezzar dies, then later in 539, Cyrus, the king of Persia, conquers Babylon. And one year later, King Cyrus of Persia issues an edict of restoration. Can you imagine the the good news? Now the Jews are allowed to return home. They're allowed to go back to their homeland. They're allowed to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple. Then after many delays, finally the temple's rebuilt and dedicated in 515. But despite the predictions and the prayers, what the, the, the new age that the Jews thought was gonna come did not materialize. It's still laid in ruins and the Israelites were not upholding the laws of God. Which brings us to Nehemiah chapter 1. The year was 446, 100 years since the Jews had been allowed to return. And they were allowed to rebuild, but yet God's great city, the city, laid in ruins. And so for Nehemiah, this brought one reaction, sadness, right? Can you guys pick, I mean, I think sometimes we read these stories and we're like, well, of course he was sad, right? But, but try to put yourself in the situation of Nehemiah to be so far from home and to get this devastating report and to feel hope again and then to find that it's still in ruins. How many of you have, have like been at the bottom and then you felt this sense of hope and then all of a sudden you're like desperate again, right? I mean, let's be real. Like you see a glimpse, you go to the doctor and they're like, oh, it looks better than the last time. And then you go six months later and they're like, it's back worse than it's ever been. And you're like, God, you gave me this hope. I thought we were on the path to restoration. I thought we were rebuilding and now we're back again. That's where Nehemiah was at. And his reaction we find in Nehemiah chapter one, verse four. When I, Nehemiah, heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. This is what I think is the first point, the first reaction, the first step for us in being prepared to reach the lost for Jesus. And I hope if we care about one thing collectively, it's lost people meeting Jesus. Like, I hope that that's what you care about. Um, but I want to tell you that nothing will happen, or I'll say this, not much will happen, if you're taking notes, until you grieve. Not much will happen until you grieve. Nehemiah, he says, I heard these things, and I sat down and wept. Let me ask you, is your heart filled with concern for those who don't know Jesus? Is your heart filled with concern for those who don't know Jesus? Do you have a burden on your heart for people, for the souls of people? Are you conscious about the fact that people around you are not following Jesus? Are you aware of that? And does it break your heart that people are in danger of an eternal destination apart from Jesus? Dwight Moody, who's famous, was in London um, one time during one of his evangelistic tours. Several British ministers came to visit him, and they asked him what the secret was to his effectiveness. They wanted to know why he was so good at reaching people for Jesus when he had been poorly educated. Like, he, he had no education relative to some of these other guys, but he was extremely effective. And they said, what's the secret? So Moody, to, the story tells us, takes us uh, up to the window of a hotel room. He takes these three ministers up there, and he asks them to look out the window, and he says, one by one, he asks them, what do you see when you look out here? So he's in this hotel room with these ministers and they're looking out and they describe the buildings and how tall the buildings are and how beautiful the buildings are. And they're describing the parks below and how green the grass is and how beautiful it is. And they're describing the people that they see in the park. And they turn after they describe what they see and they look at Dwight Moody and they say, Dwight, what do you see? And at this point he's sobbing And he says, I see countless souls that will one day go to hell if they don't know Jesus. We will not be effective, my friends, if we don't grieve. When was the last time, not just their their eternal destination, but the pain in their lives? When are we sitting down and crying with people? not just about their eternity, but about their pain right now and about the struggle right now and about the hopelessness that they feel right now because Dwight Moody saw people differently than you and I do a lot of times. He saw people entirely differently and because he saw their soul and he saw the eternity ahead of them, he didn't just see people strolling in the park. He saw people with a different agenda. He saw people with a burden for their lostness. Their plight grieved him and it caused him to approach relationships with concern and urgency. Charles Swindoll, popular author, author suggested uh, he said this phrase one time often. He would say, rise and shine, my friend. Everybody you meet today is on heaven's most wanted list, right? Like that's a cool way to think about it. Wake up, get out of bed, have your breakfast and go out there and know that everybody you come in contact with is on heaven's most wanted list. Jesus wants them. Jesus cares about them. Jesus loves them. He died for them and he wants them to know him. Right? We look at those milk cartons and we think like, have I ever seen this person? I wonder whether, you know, we're looking for him. We're looking for the criminals. But listen, Jesus is looking for his children. And so everyone we come in contact with is an opportunity to point towards Christ. I want to remind us and assure you that lost people are really lost. God wants them to be saved. And Satan would have no other objective or goal than for us to believe that this is not true. Satan wants us to come here on Sunday and to be like, yeah, yay, God. And then to go on Monday and forget that there are people who don't know him. That would be the most effective tool of the enemy. But Satan whispers to anyone who will listen. He says, people are all okay. Don't worry. Let it Mind their own business. They're all fine. People are good. Go easy on them. It's not a big deal. Sin is not a big deal. God doesn't expect much from you. There's a lot of ways to get there. Let them find their way and get there. It's okay. And so we can sit around apathetically and just let people destroy their lives. But the truth is, if we believe the Bible, which we do here, John 14, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we can just let people seek, chase goodness, and assume that their sin doesn't do anything, and let them mind their own business and find their own way. But the reality is, there's only one way, and it's through Christ. All of us have many needs, but there's no need greater than our need for Jesus. And so as disciples of Jesus, we are called to be engaged in seeking and building relationships with lost people. It's an ongoing consciousness and awareness of the lostness of lost people. The mindset that prompts us to take steps towards building relationships with people of all types, with people that don't agree with us, with people that don't think like us, with people that don't believe like us, that don't look like us, that don't do the same things that we do. We engage with them because God cares about them, amen? And if all of our friends look like us, what's that say to the world? Unless you look like me, God doesn't care about you. And it's just not true. God cares about each and every one of his children and the ones that are lost matter to him as much as the ones who belong to him. And so if we're his children, then we're called to seek and to lead the lost to Jesus. But it's not gonna happen until you cry about it. I was just talking to somebody uh, the other day who was talking about some friends of his getting together. And he said, I just had this overwhelming sense. He was at a party with a bunch of his friends and he just had this overwhelming sense and he didn't physically cry. But he said, I looked around the room and I just said, what is happening? Like so much lostness in this room, the conversation, the attitude, the, the belief, nothing about Jesus. And it made him extremely sad. And it's not going to change until we cry. And Nehemiah knew that. Not much is going to change. Not much is going to happen until you grieve. Second thing uh, I can assure you from the word is that not much is going to happen until you pray. Not much is going to happen until you pray. Uh, it says it back in that verse that we just looked at. I sat down and wept for days. He says, I mourned. I cried. I fasted. I prayed before the God of heaven. Um, Some ministers in the area decided that they wanted to rally around 2 Chronicles 7.14 this year, Um, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, because we want to see Wabash, we want to see revival, we want to see more and more people know Jesus in this city, and in the world, frankly. And so some guys decided at 7.14 in the morning, 7.14 at night, we're going to set alarms, we're going to pray, we invite people to do it with us, Um, but I talked to one of the ministers, um because this Wednesday is 714 July 14th and they said hey let's open let's all go to the city park at 714 a.m. and 714 p.m. and let's pray together and so the invite is out there if you want to do that show up anybody can come and pray it's not for just ministers it's for anybody that wants to pray but one of the ministers we were talking this week he said the sad thing is when i do a potluck at my church we have the biggest attendance that we ever have like, fifth Sunday meals, right? Everybody comes to church, everybody stays because there's food. But the sad thing is, when we have a night of prayer, nobody shows up. It's, it's really not that funny. But it's kind of an awkward laugh, sorry. But it's true, guys. It's true. Like, if we had a meal for our community outside today at 1 o'clock, we would have 150 people here. But if I said, hey, guys, today at 7.15, tonight, we're going to get together and pray, um, there wouldn't be very many people here. So I think we need to grieve and I think we need to pray. Um, The Bible's clear that you can tell a tree by its fruit. And if we don't grieve and we don't pray, that might be why we don't see fruit. I'm just kind of like one plus one is two kind of guy. If we don't grieve, we don't pray, we don't see lost people find Jesus. Kind of makes sense. Um, But Nehemiah's plight, his grief leads him to pray. He, chapter one, if you want to go back and read, the prayer is recorded in Nehemiah chapter one. He prays this prayer. It's a praise. He prays with confession. He actually confesses his own sin and the sins of his people. He takes ownership, right? He says, you know, I, I apologize for the way we've done this, even though he didn't do it all. He prays the promises of God. And finally, he prays for the ability to do something to help. And what's convicting about the prayer is it says, for days he prayed. For days. He was persistent. He prayed with fasting. He he gave up eating so he could spend more time praying. He prayed and he cried. He prayed with endurance. Chapters one and two uh, show us a separation of four months. Chapter one and chapter two, there's four months in the middle. So we can assume with pretty fair certainty that he prayed and fasted and cried for four months. Like this is convicting, my friends, because I'll pray for like four days and then I stop. Like I'll pray for something for a while and then I I give up or I, I lose sight of the fact that God still might be doing something. He prayed for months that God would bring the restoration that he promised. He prayed, he confessed, and he kept after it every day for four months. And this is a good example for us when it comes to evangelism. The burden of our heart, the grief, the concern that we have for others should lead us to pray for them, to pray for salvation, to pray for an opportunity and a path to disciple them. Um, a guy named Sid Lowe Baxter says, many uh, men may spurn our appeals. They may reject our message. They, mo- they might oppose our arguments. They might despise us as people. But I love this part. They are helpless against our prayers right? Maybe you've tried to share faith with someone and they're like, you're dumb. That's stupid. I don't believe it. That's garbage. And you were like, took it personal. You don't have to take it personal. We can leave the burden of proof on God. He's in control. It's not about you. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Jesus, but they can reject us. They can oppose us. They can get mad at us, but they cannot reject the prayers of God's people. James 5, 16, it says, therefore, confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous person, it says, is powerful and effective. There is a spiritual war going on in our hearts, and prayer is our greatest weapon. There is no telling how much good we can do in preparing lost people for salvation, but our prayers are making a difference. When we're faithful in prayer for the lost, then those that we know and even those that we don't know, it's amazing how doors of opportunity will finally open. And so I would encourage you, make a list of people that you wanna see find Jesus and start praying for him. When I was a young kid, my minister encouraged us to make a triage list. This is the list in a boat. They put it up on a sign, there was one in the Titanic. If the boat goes down, these are the people you get first right for whatever reason they were more important for whatever reason you needed them off first uh, they had more value i don't know exactly why everybody made the list but my youth minister said make a list of your friends that you want to see jesus get first and just pray and pray and pray and pray you don't have to call them every day you don't have to tell them they're on your prayer list or on the triage list whatever you want to call it just pray that god would open doors that god would open their heart to listen I was listening to a podcast this week about a young girl who had worked with uh, an agency that had helped. She was a single mom, and she went through this uh, program to get some car seats and assistance in helping have this child, and um, there was a church that came alongside, and they said, we prayed for her every single day. She had to come to the church to pick up all the stuff and she had to come to Bible studies to like meet these requirements in order to get this assistance. And she did all of that stuff, but she never made a decision for Jesus. And this lady that was really close to her said, I found myself frustrated with God. I'm like, God, we loved her so well. We gave stuff to her. We met her needs. We prayed for her and we, like, we just loved her. And then she, she had the baby and we had a baby shower and then she, we never saw her again. And this young lady, years later, reconnected with this girl and said, she was in a season of life where she had seen all these little things that pointed her to God. People had done nice things for her, and she's like, yeah, this is great, this feels nice. And she said that she, she one day said, God, I need, a, I need a real big, clear, obvious sign, and I'll give everything I can to follow you. I just need to know that you're real and that you love me. And she said she was working at a gas station one day, And this guy came in and he looked super nervous and he just walked up to her and he said, I don't know, I don't do this very often. I really have never done this before, but as I walked in here, God told me that I needed to tell you one simple thing, that he loves you. And she said, she just started crying because one person was led and encouraged by God just to tell someone that they mattered to God. And so years later, These people at the church find out and how exciting that is. But listen, the guy in the gas station has no idea. He has no idea. You have no idea what your prayers are doing in the lives of people around you. You have no idea what your kindness is doing when you love people, when you welcome people, when you're encouraging people. You don't know what God's doing in that. And that's not for us to know. But we also need to know we have to speak because not much is gonna happen till we grieve, not much is gonna happen till we pray, but not much is gonna happen if we don't speak, if we don't actually take action. When the door opens, we have to walk through it. We read about the opportunity Nehemiah had in chapter two. When he was doing his job, it says in verses one through five, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. I had been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, he said, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it that you want? Then I prayed, he said to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. You see the courage in that story? Like he grieves and he prays, and when God gave him an opportunity, he took action. Consider what might have happened. Had he not done this, had he not cried for his city, had he not prayed for his city, it's possible that Nehemiah could have even given up. When the king asked him what he wanted, he could have froze and been afraid and not said, this is what I want. If we have a heart for the lost and if we pray for the lost, then we have to begin to be aware of opportunities that we have that God gives us to take advantage of them. And some of them are going to be obvious. Sometimes people are going to say to you, why do you believe in God? I want to believe in God. What do I need to do? Other times, you just need to tell somebody that they matter. You just need to tell the mom who's got chaotic kids in the grocery store that she's doing a great job, that she's a great parent, that you can't imagine what it's like to walk through the grocery store with three kids, but she's doing a really, really good job. The, the dad who's working really hard and isn't making, doesn't seem to be making ends meet, but he's trying to make a way for his family to provide for him, but also be present with him. You just need to tell him he's doing a great job and that God sees his efforts and he's gonna bless him and he loves him and cares about him. Sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's not. But these are opportunities for us to share truth. 1 Peter three fifteen, in your hearts, Revere Christ as Lord and always, always, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do it with gentleness and respect, right? Nobody likes the bullhorn guy. I mean, maybe some people do. I think he's a clown, right? But we do like the people that are gentle and respectful, and they know the truth, and they believe the truth, and they live it out. And they pray, and they grieve, and they take action. Nothing's gonna happen if we don't do that. Regardless of our opportunities, at some point, you're gonna have to do something, right? I think one of the traps that we fall into a lot of times is like, well, I'm gonna be the one that's sad for people and grieves, and I'm gonna be the comforter. Other people are like, I'm gonna be the prayer warrior, and I'm gonna just call Ryan when we need to bring in the big guns or call Greg or call Rex, like I'll get the big guns to come in and bring the thunder. But listen, every single one of you, if you belong to Jesus, you are called to the great commission, every single one of us. Myself, you, if you belong to Jesus, you are called to grieve, you're called to pray, and you are called to speak when you're asked to speak. Nehemiah was afraid. It says he prayed right in that moment. He prayed. He was scared. What do I say? How do I communicate this? But he had an opportunity and he stepped up and we should do the same thing. I want to give you two questions. These aren't the only ones, but I want to give us something practical today because I know that this is a scary subject. We think of evangelism as like sitting down, going through a comic strip or like walking them through salvation. But just loving people with the love of Christ is pretty simple at times. I want to give you two questions that you could use that would help, I think, when you're evangelizing or trying to reach your friends. One is just to say, would you come with me, right? Just the question of would you come with me? I'm not saying bring them to church, while that's a good thing. Statistics tell us most people go to church because they're invited. Very rarely do people anymore just walk into a building and say, I just want to be here. Usually it's like you invite your friends, they show up. I mean, that's most people's story. That's my story. Even though I grew up in a Christian home, my neighbor came across and said, hey, you want to come to church with us? We didn't know where to go. We were looking and he invited us and we went there. So there is this invite, would you come with me? Maybe it's, would you come with me to my life group? Maybe it's, would you come with me to this Bible study? Maybe would you come with me to this family reunion? Would you come with me to lunch? Like build that into your vocabulary, invite people to go with you. Jesus modeled this. Very rarely do you see Jesus get alone and, unless he's getting together with the Father to pray. He took two people with him. He sent 70 people out. He always was showing people how to love people. He said, come on, let's go do this. Let's go to the other side. Why don't you guys come with me? When he met the woman at the well, did you guys ever catch the part that he sends the disciples into town? So he sends the disciples into town in a place where they're considered half-breeds. They don't like each other. And he says, here, I'm gonna to talk to the woman. You guys go get lunch. Go, na- go make a trade for lunch, barter for your lunch with people that hate you. And I'll take care of this woman. He was always saying, let's go together. Would you come with me? We see all kinds of people coming to Jesus because he invited them. The second thing you can ask is, would you read this with me? Would you read the Bible with me? The the Bible speaks of itself as being living and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. That's what God tells us about the word. If that's true, then we don't have to have all the answers because the Bible does. So you could just simply say like, hey, let's get together and read this. Would you get together and read this with me? Start in Matthew or Mark or one of the gospels. Just read through the Bible an hour a week Uh, 10 minutes a day, get a Bible plan and invite someone to get into the word with you. If people read the Bible, guess what they learn about? Jesus. And guess what happens when people meet Jesus? They like Jesus and they want to follow him. Remember the woman at the well, uh, the, the woman that Jesus talked to says, come and meet the man who knows everything about me right? Like I think that's the coolest story of evangelism because she doesn't like say you guys need to come and know Jesus. He's the Messiah, which she probably said those things, but her excitement was this person knows me and he loves me. You should come and hang out with him. He knows everything about me and he still died for me. That's the God that we serve. And so we invite people to join us. If people find Jesus, they find life. We say that every Sunday. It's not a joke or a cliche. It's the truth. Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing the message and the message Message is heard through the word about Christ. That's how they find Jesus. It comes by hearing about him. So we got to grieve, we got to pray, but they got to hear about it. John 20. Jesus performed many signs in the presence of his disciples, which aren't recorded in this book. It says, but these, the ones that were recorded, were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing him, you can have life in his name. I want you to realize that this is really, really hard, but it's also really, really easy. We grieve and we pray and we speak. We grieve, we pray, and we speak. We develop a burden for lost people. We pray for lost people. And then when God gives us an opportunity, we take it. Right? We grieve, we pray, and we speak. John 4, 35, I want to wrap this up here. He says, I I never caught this until this week, and I loved it. He says, don't you have a saying? It's still four months until the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. We got all kinds of sayings, right? Like, oh, I'm gonna, I gotta wait till they're ready, right? Or I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring them here, and, and then I'll let Ryan preach to them. Or I'm gonna take them to Bible study, and they'll hear it there. Um, and <laughs> I love that the the story says. Don't you guys have a saying, it's still four months to the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes. Listen, church, we got all kinds of excuses. We got all kinds of sayings. We can say, well, they're not ready. I need to wait. Uh, I need to wait for the right opportunity. Listen, Jesus would tell us today, open your eyes. The world's not getting any more godly or any more moral. We're not getting any closer to Jesus as a world. Look at what's happening in all the countries around the world. We can pick on a country, but we're we're all seeing more and more lostness every day around us. People are turning to other things other than Jesus. Open your eyes. You can't do anything if it doesn't grieve you and if we don't pray about it and if we don't speak about him. Shout it from the mountains. We don't sing songs because they're clever and catchy. We sing them because they have truth in them. Go on and scream it to the masses that he is God. Jesus is king. Amen? Open your eyes. Grieve and pray. And speak.